Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, brought to you by Whiskey and Milk. I'm Adam Clark. I'm Sarah Sellers. As recovering addicts, we're on a mission to fight the stigma against addiction. And inspire those struggling by sharing the experience of real people in recovery. Because addiction doesn't discriminate. Behind every struggle, there's a person with a story. This, this is, is Recovery, recovery Uncovered. Uncovered. Attention, now arriving at your destination, the last house on the block. Welcome to episode three of Recovery Uncovered. I'm here with Sarah and our guest Jody today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, his recovery story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, and and what he does to keep it that way. Awesome. Glad to be here. Thank you all for inviting me. Absolutely. For being here at 8 a.m. That's late. Uh, it's Oh, my God. It's <laughs> early. Well, then I'm going to thank myself for being here at 8 a.m. Absolutely. Well, you were here at like 8.25 a.m., but well. we'll which you try talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> you did your best, you know. That's all I we did. Can ask for. I that's did right. my best. You were well, here in time to be on when we started recording. So that's right. That's all that matters. That's right. I just walked in. <laughs> um, so Jody, we just want to get a picture of what your drinking looked like, what your recovery looked like, and and we kind of want to go from there. Yeah, we you have so much experience to share. Um, and so, however you want to navigate that, tell us what, yeah. what it was like, what sure. happened to you, and, and what you're doing now with your life. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, for me, um, I, I, looking back, I know I was an alcoholic before I ever took my first drink. You know, we hear it uh, around the rooms of recovery all the time that I just didn't fit my skin. Something was different. I felt... Um, you know, completely different than other people um, at an early age. And, you know, I have vivid memories of second grade, third grade. You know, I'm a, I'm a straight-A student. I'm an all-star in sports. But in my mind, something's not right. Like, mm. I'm not cool enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't fit in. Just something wasn't right. And that was there from, you know, from, from that age and, and probably still to an extent today. Um but that, I think, was, was really the beginning of, of my journey as an alcoholic and, and really as an addict. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable saying I'm an addict. I got clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of got conditioned to say I'm an alcoholic, and I am, but really I'm an addict. Um, <clears throat> and so I'll kind of go between the two, but I always mean addict in my brain when I say that. So um, growing up in a uh, very... Uh, loving family early on, uh, lots of extended family, grandparents, cousins, all of that stuff. Um, we moved to Pascagoula when I was, I think, about three and a half, maybe. And all of our family was in Yazoo City and, and Jackson. Um, so there was a little bit of a change, but it, it suited me well. Love the coast, still love the coast, love the environment, love the people, love the lifestyle. It's it's a, you know, if you're from the coast, you realize that the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is totally different than the rest of Mississippi. Yeah. And so I love that growing up. Um, would spend a lot of time during the summer and over the holidays at my, my grandparents' house, my mom's parents in Yazoo City, and got really close to them. Um, loved that time. As we got a little bit older, uh, dad would spend a lot of time um, – away he he worked in a contracting business so they would go on jobs for 
a week or two weeks and then he'd come home for three or four days and and those those periods started getting a little bit longer when he would be gone um and and it was kind of at a you know a crucial time in a young boy's life mm-hmm. going into teenage years maturing puberty all that kind of stuff and so my papa kind of became in my mind like that confidant and we would spend time together when i was there we would go out in his garden i would go to their grocery store and spend all day with him learning how to run the grocery store business he really um supported me in my athletic career at that age growing up i was huge in baseball huge in football and Loved both sports. Baseball is really my my true love, and and you know he bought me catcher's equipment and the, you know gloves, mitts, all that kind of stuff. In fact, I still have the last catcher's mitt that I ever owned, which was the last present that he ever gave me. He gave me money to buy catcher's equipment, and uh, my birthday is November the third. He passed away November the thirteenth, um, and I think I had just turned twelve, if I remember correctly. Um, it was very quickly thereafter that kind of my world just kind of crumbled yeah um I distinctly remember finding out when my grandfather passed away my dad was home at the time and and I wanted to be a kid and I wanted to be sad and and not that my dad did anything wrong looking back you know I think as a dad if I had a son I'd say the same thing it's, you know son you need to be strong for your mom right now I've got to go take care of this stuff for the business and be ready to you know leave and go to the funeral in a day um that didn't that didn't take on me i think the way he intended it and that yeah. began a real process of suppressing feelings and acting stronger than i was and and putting on a mask for everybody else and that continued for the majority of my life um that's this a lot is, of responsibility for a 12 year old to yeah. be the man of the house well and i don't know that i don't know not, that he meant it that way yeah. but in my brain that's what i took like i've got to be the man of the house that's right? how i would have taken it like <clears throat> yeah. okay i got to step up i can't be emotional. I can't be sad. I got to be the strong one for mom. Exactly. Um, which that's, yeah, that's a lot. And that's exactly how I took it. And, um, it was probably three or four months later, I I took my first drink and my first drink was, uh, the majority of two 40 ounce bottles of Bud Light. And I loved it. Um, two forties, man. Two forties, man. I had and, three uh, Smirnoff ices my first time, and I thought I was hard. And, I I don't know how I did it. I, all I know is that I immediately wanted to do it again. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Even though my dad woke me up the next morning at six o'clock and said, "Come on, you're going to the job site with me," and I was swinging a sledgehammer, miserable all day. All I could think about was getting home. We had two forty ounce bottles left, and I was like, "I'm going home and drinking those." Yeah. Did he know? No, it- I, I don't. He's never told me he knew. Yeah. Um. But I mean, as a parent now, I can I can say he probably had an idea mm-hmm. that something nefarious went on the night before. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, he's never admitted that he knew. Um. And that really started my you know my my active addiction, if you will. Um. So, a little over twelve years old, not a teenager yet. Um. Started dipping Copenhagen, drinking. Um, we had, where I grew up in Pascagoula, we had a little convenience store right across the street from my house. And um, an immigrant man owned it, and he would let me cut his grass once a week. When I mowed our grass, I would run across the street with a lawnmower. It had like, took five minutes to mow this little strip of grass. And he would trade beer for me mowing his grass. So at 14, 15 oh, that's years a win old, for a 14 year old. I, yeah, I was getting free beer every weekend. Um, 
and it just kept progressing. Um, and at the same time, those, those mental demons increased. And, I, and, you know, looking back, I can, I can see, you know, how that happened, why that happened, you know, suppressing the feelings, not talking about what's going on, covering it all up with alcohol and adolescent brain. I mean, all this stuff just compounding on itself. And yeah. the only solution that ever worked was suffering through the week to get drunk on the weekends, mm-hmm. not think about it, not have to feel like I didn't fit in because I was the cool drunk guy that could get everybody beer. Um, I had a, a vehicle so, you know, I could pick people up. We could sneak out, not get caught, drink more beer. You know, so this real persona of this, like, super cool dude uh, really suited me. Yeah. Like, I, I just finally felt like I belonged, right? Now, keep in mind the whole time, I'm I'm wearing a totally different mask from – seven in the morning till seven at night. And that's the straight A student mm-hmm. president of the student council, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in every club at school, captain of the baseball team, captain of the football team, all state and cross country. Like so, from all outward <clears throat> appearances, you had it all together. Yeah. And what yeah. I realized in doing that was I could get away with what I wanted to do on the weekends. If I kept that up because none of the adults knew the truth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm already hiding stuff. I'm already lying. I mean, I'm living a total, uh, by the time I'm probably 14 or 15 and that continued for numerous years. Um, never did anything but drink except for one time in high school. Uh, we were on a, uh, went to a small Catholic school on the coast and we had a retreat, an overnight retreat for the entire senior class. And it was on the beach in Biloxi and we had time to go sit on the the beach that night that we were staying over and a couple of guys had brought some pot and they're like, we we're going to get high, you know, and I had no idea what pot was. So everybody sitting in a circle, passed the joints around, hit it a few times. Don't know that I got high. don't remember feeling anything, but later that night, one of the guys had part of the joint left over and he got up out of the bunk bed and went in the bathroom, opened the window and tried to smoke it. And the teacher caught him. Mm. Somehow or another, he gets rid of the joint before the teacher actually found that joint. But we all got hauled in to the library at school the next day. And when we got there, all our parents were sitting there waiting. Oh, in order to not get suspended from school, we all had to agree to take drug tests. Somehow or another, I passed a drug test, but I admitted to my parents that I had smoked pot that night. So they knew their son's trying drugs now, and, and I got sent to a therapist. I convinced the therapist that I don't have any problems. I'm not drinking. I'm not a pothead. And uh, About five months later, I go off to college. Um, first night, I was in the dorm at college. I got so drunk, I got written up by my RA, um, and pretty much everybody there knew I had an alcohol problem. Starting strong. Started out strong, man. Um, and I was the guy in college that I would go out Monday through Sunday, yeah, same. Um, you know, and, and if there was somebody going out, I was going out with uh-huh. them. If they weren't going out, I was asking people to go out. Yeah, um, and if I didn't know them, I was going to find somebody who was going out. Absolutely. Like, there was always going to be a party. Yeah. And yeah. I was going to be a part of it. Exactly. Um, my fr- So, the, the school that I went to, <clears throat> everybody lived in a dorm for four years. There's no fraternities or sororities, and it's inter- it's intermingled with uh, grades. So, we had juniors living directly across the hall from us my freshman year. And I came back from fall break that year, and the guys walked in, they grabbed me, and they dragged me across the hall, laid me on the ground, hog-tied me, 
lay me on my back. It's it's hazing. Like this is this is midnight. Hazing for what? Just for if the there's sake no of fraternity. It. <clears throat> okay. Just for the sake of it. All right. For the sake of hazing. Everything in our dorm operated like a fraternity. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, it was it was a fraternity in all but name. Yeah. Um, right. And, and so they lay me on my back and they start pouring whiskey down my throat and um. <clears throat> I go through this whole process, and I, I come out the other end hammered, and they're like, no, you're the cool one. You're going out with us tonight. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to hang out with juniors. But I don't have a fake ID. How am I going to get in the bar? And they said, well, you're going to carry this fog machine, and you're going to tell them you're part of the band. I'm like, what band? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, for the next, like, six months in school, I'm the fog machine guy for this band. <laughs> and I go to all these bars, and I'm getting hammered, and I'm having a great time. Keep in mind, I have no idea who this band is. Yeah, I didn't know until about twenty years later that I was the fog machine guy for Humphreys McGee when they were a no campus shit. band in South Bend, Indiana, my <laughs> freshman year. That's how hammered I was That's every wild. single time that we went. I couldn't even tell you a song they sing to this day. But, <laughs> but I was the fog, the fog machine, machine guy. guy. For them. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, the so. Um, that's uh that's how it went until um towards the end of my junior year in college and one of the 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 two biggest uh positions that you could get in our dorm was dorm president and I had been that my junior year. And the way I got that was a grand to get extremely drunk, put on a dress and go to the all girls school across the street and eat dinner on a Friday night and let all the guys in the dorm come watch. It's a classic like Animal house scene. We're yeah. like walking down the cafeteria line, just hammered. We we get some sort of word that security's on their way, and we sneak out. And I had to ride back to campus in the trunk of a Ford Escort GT to keep from getting arrested <laughs> by campus security at a college I didn't even go to. <clears throat> kind of realized then that I might have a problem. Excuse me, I got something in my throat. You're good. Yeah, it sounds kind of like uh, <clears throat> my college experience. Like from day one, I was just like. I got drunk day two. I got drunk and high and I was all in. Yeah. Like there was no like, mm, pause, maybe I shouldn't. Am I going too hard? It was just party, party, party. Absolutely. That's why I was in college. I, I've got the freedom now. Yeah. Um, you know, How are your grades at this point? Oh, terrible. Okay. Terrible. Are you <laughs> so kidding? we dropped from but the But you made it oh, to I junior w- year. Yeah, yeah. So I made it to junior year by switching my major like almost every single year and disappointing my mom <laughs> in ways that oh, wow. I, don't, I don't know that that uh, a mom could be disappointed and um, right. going from like a math major wanting to go into engineering school and be a bi- biomedical engineer and a doctor to going into just strictly what they call uh, pre-professionals, which was you got a major in something else, but you took all these science classes so you could go to med school to switching from that to, um, to accounting because my dad's a CPA. And I'm like, well, if I get an accounting degree, I can go home and work for dad. It's going to be easy. You yeah. Know? Um, and uh, in order to keep my mom happy, I went to summer school every year at University of South Alabama and took the science courses that I had dropped out of. And when I would come home and I couldn't drink like that, I would make straight A's. But then I would mm. get back to school and I would barely squeak by with C's. Yeah. You know? And um, You're just constantly playing catch up. Constantly. Constantly, constantly. I mean, I got, I got in trouble in so many classes for not showing up. Uh, Adam, I think I told you the story one time in my freshman year. Um, about almost getting dropped from a class that I was attending, but I was falling asleep the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> and and I had no idea that I was gonna get dropped from the class. So in order to keep from getting dropped from the class, I made a deal with the professor, put me in the back row, and let me stand up the whole class. 
And I was so hungover three days a week that I had to stand up in this class at 8 a.m. every morning in order to not get dropped from the and class. And you came up mm. with this idea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was totally my idea. Wow. Um, and anyway, so fast forward into junior year, I've been dorm president. I want to be an RA. An RA is like the, the biggest um, position that you can get in the dorm. It's a service position, but you also get a budget and you get to plan social events and dorm okay. governance. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool deal, right? Yeah. I mean, like 30% of the senior class applied to be an RA and only the handful that got it, right? Well, go through this whole interview process and everything else. And, and uh, my real good buddy, uh, Father Dave, who was the rector of our dorm, he calls me in. He says, look, we want to make you an RA, but we think you've got an alcohol problem. You need to go take an alcohol assessment at, at Student Affairs. So, okay, I don't have an alcohol problem. I'll go do this. And I breeze through it, get 100 on that sucker because I lied and cheated. And, you know, we all know the yeah. answers, right? And you so, just don't be honest. That's the answer. That's it. So, so now I'm an RA. But being an RA, like, I can't be hammered all the time. So I had to figure something else out. And I remembered that there were these guys in the dorm that smoked pot. So I'm like, I'm going to try smoking pot and see how that, you know, how that works. took about three weeks, and I was in my dorm room, fan turned around, blowing out with a with a paper towel tube stuffed with uh, dryer dry sheets. sheets. Yeah. And I'm, I'm smoking pot three and four times a day. And um, graduate from college, come home, one thing leads to another, pot doesn't work. Um, got a pain pill prescription, I got my wisdom teeth taken out. That worked great, but I knew you could get addicted to them, so I wanted to find something else. Um, buddy of mine introduced me to ecstasy, Started doing that three or four times a week. Love that. I could smoke pot during the week and function and do that on the weekends. Um, the whole time I'm drinking, but I'm not drinking to the point of, like, oblivion. Yeah. Um, it was just <clears throat> always there. It was always there. Um, somewhere right – I went home and, and worked for about two years after undergrad and uh, was about to go to a study abroad program in Europe for a summer and start law school. And it was probably three weeks or so before that, I randomly, just a chance interaction, got introduced to cocaine. And I was scared to death of it. Grew up in the 80s with the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. and Nancy Reagan, just, just say, say no. no. Oh, yeah. Um, great intention. Uh, zero efficacy in, in yeah, policy. I there, don't think right? <laughs> any child that ever went through that program was like, you know what? I will just say no. Right. They just, like, taught me more about drugs. And I was like, oh. Want to try that? Yeah. See for addicts, but I do. I do feel that some kids saw that and they were like, "Wow, this is really important to know for when I get to high school." And then they just don't do it, right? When you, you know? say that, my head just goes like nerds. And I know, and that's well. That's what scares me having having teenage girls now is what do we teach? What do we teach young kids when just say no doesn't work? Right. Right. Do we teach them it's okay to make a mistake and come to an adult and say, I think I have a problem because I, I never felt that that was okay. Yeah. I didn't know that was an option. Right. And, and not that, not that that would have solved the problem then, but maybe it would have started me on a path towards a solution without having to go 30 something years of my life in full blown active addiction. And, you know, not only blowing opportunities, you know, harming myself, harming my family, harming, you know, my kids mm -hmm. now and, and all those things that, that, that followed, you know, 30 years and being, you know, late thirties, early forties and still being an addict, um, using every day. Um, yeah, it seems like just honest information about it would go a lot further. 
like I remember being in a uh, like some class where they were telling us about about drugs and substances, and uh, the guidance counselor had like this briefcase that was, like with little glass windows with like fake drugs in it, and they were telling us all about them and like they made pot just as bad as heroin. Right, and, like it's not. It's just not like. Can I smoke pot successfully? No, I cannot. I'm still hung up on the fact that they brought a briefcase. He had a briefcase. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I mean, was told fake, they were fake but drugs. Still, but still. Yeah, it was like little glass boxes with little samples. <laughs> so you got to see them all. Well, but it's like a, it's all a difficult thing to manage yeah, and navigate yeah. because. As an addict, you know, for me, I know that the more consequences I gained, the more opportunity I had to see that my life was crap. But then how do you really know when a person is ready for help or not? You know, because sometimes they need empathy. Mm -hmm. They need a soft touch. Some people need a really hard jab in the face. You're absolutely right. And and I think that's where um, the consequences and the pain come in for the addict, right? It yeah. Is, my experience has been when the consequences, the threat of consequences and the pain got bad enough, I was I was ready to reach out for help and I was willing to be uncomfortable in situations and tell somebody what was going on and what I needed. But until those pain or until those consequences and that pain got bad enough, I was willing to just continue the way I was, regardless of the people that were telling me, I love you. What are you doing to yourself? Mm -hmm. You're going to go to jail. I'm going to cut you off. I can't do this. anymore. none of that mattered until it mattered to me. Yeah. Um, I had to get backed into a corner. Yeah. But I mean, as a kid, how do you know that? Well, because the lying is so harmful. The lying, that was the thing that my dad would just say over and over and over again. Just stop lying to me. Yeah. Just stop lying. I can't, you know, I can't do anything for you if you're lying to me. But we know it's going to be a lot of acting. It's going to be a lot of lying, if not acting. Right. Like, I'm I'm over here fake crying. Right. You know, I'm, like, putting on a show. Yeah. For, for my, you know, to get away with something. Right. It's not genuine. No, it's yeah. not. And our disease is in the back of our brain telling us, you can't be honest here because you're you going to lose me. Yes. Yeah. Right? And, and that was... The only thing I knew that made life tolerable. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And 100%. so if I get honest, I lose my coping mechanism. Right. right. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's difficult. So right up to this point before you, or when you do cocaine, yeah. um, what are your consequences looking like? Your relationships? Mm. So, um, I'd had, uh, a girlfriend or two, nothing serious. I'd had a really serious girlfriend coming out of undergrad and moving home, and that relationship got uh, destroyed as a result of, of a night drinking and partying And um, at her school. We didn't go to the same school, and I'd come home for a formal. And so I, there was real intentions to get engaged to this lady and yeah. still a wonderful person, um, but she was having no part of it. And so I'd lost that. Mom and dad are angry. Um, all the time, mom's angry at me. Dad's mm-hmm. dad's a lot more empathetic and uh, want to know what's going on and trying to figure out how to help, but um, not sure he really knew the extent of the problem. Um, sure he had an idea, but um, no real consequences legally ever. Um, no consequences um outside of that one relationship at this time. So really I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making money. I'm putting money in the bank. I'm about to go back to school. Um, 
and really to the outside world, outside of my immediate family and, and that, that one relationship, nobody knew I had a problem. Yeah, um, your world's yeah. not crumbling at all. No, I'm, I'm still the guy that went to school and graduated in four years. I came home and volunteer coached the cross-country team at my high school and the baseball team and the soccer team. I was a junior youth advisor for the youth group at my church, and every weekend I'm out getting high and hammered. And any day during the week that I can sneak out for a lunch break, I'm smoking a joint and, you know, whatever I could do. Yeah. But, like, there, nobody's caught on outside of immediate family, and I think they're still trying to keep it contained. Um, right. And uh, so, yeah, no real consequences at that point. So your peers then, were you – do you think that subconsciously you were – choosing people that were like you to be in your life if you weren't having any disconnects with just regular friends um I really had two different groups okay and and it, it really fed into my my isolation later in my addiction addiction years um so I would I would put people in my life during the day and for work and for specific purposes to further that that disguise right mm -hmm. and so i would hang out with the good crowd when it was time to be a good boy but then i had all of my friends that i partied with and you know all these people were people that i couldn't be associated with or seen with in this other world so i really had two different worlds and and i would be fully in one or fully in the other but neither ever cross paths yeah or so um, i thought i'm sure people were starting to catch on at some point. But. Yeah, th this is all just from your perspective. Right, so. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I got introduced to cocaine. I went to Europe for two and a half months, and it was on. Um, is that where you got introduced to it at? No, 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 it was right before I left. Okay. And um, so uh, got to Europe, <clears throat> and within a few hours of being there, I'd found a, a cocaine dealer in a little small town in Spain that I lived in. And I literally drank and used cocaine for two and a half months in Europe. <clears throat> it's crazy um, how you can pick up an addict and drop them anywhere in the world. Right. And they can find their substance of choice. Oh like yeah. That. Oh yeah. No hesitation, <clears throat> no delay. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't oh, know you're what's good, going on my throat this morning. Um, but yeah, so come back, go to Oxford, enrolled in law school and I'm thinking this is it you know I'm finally gonna get a, get my act together I'm gonna yeah. be an attorney uh got a clerkship right away with a with a very successful uh well-known attorney in Mississippi and um got paid a lot of money and uh stayed stayed clean for about two weeks and I was like well they're not gonna know um I really don't have to go to school and uh, I can still make grades in law school because there's only one exam and it's at the end of each semester. So did that through my first year, did great. Um, don't know how I did great, but I did. Um, and and uh, going into my second year, the wheels started coming off. Um, started using drugs, on a, harder drugs on a very regular basis. Started using a lot more of them. Couldn't function, couldn't go to work, was calling into work and actually towards the end of my second year in, in law school, the attorney called and said, Hey, look, you're, you're a great worker when you're here, but you're hardly ever here. So yeah. we're going to have to let you go. Um, go into my third year thinking, well, I can just, I'll just suffer through it and I'll graduate. Towards the end of my third year, my mom had a surgery in Houston that left her paralyzed. And, um, my brother and dad and I were flying back and forth to Houston a bunch to take care of her. And, and it took, several months to get her back home. Well, 
I was 12 days away from graduating with Drew so that I could help take care of her, mm. thinking I would come back during the summer with plans, uh, made plans with law school to come back and take those finals. That didn't work out because of how bad her situation was. Got her home at the end of July that year, went back to law school, re-enrolled, and three weeks later, Katrina hit. Whole family's in Pascagoula. My mom's paralyzed, like needing daily doctor's visits and therapy mm. and all this stuff. My brother's in med school in New Orleans. He's basically locked down by the National Guard, can't leave. Dad's got to be on the coast. Mom moves in with my 72-year-old, I think at the time, grandmother in Yazoo City. So I assumed she needed me to help her. So I withdrew from law school again, started taking care of her, and it just went downhill real fast. Yeah. I mean, nothing to hold me accountable. You no longer had anything you were working towards either. No. And, um, you know, say I'm taking care of mom, and that's really like two days a week that I have to go to Yazoo City and take care of her. The rest of the time I'm getting drunk and high and blowing money, taking out student loans and not going to – to, to school never I thought I was know. the only one who did that oh, man. <laughs> uh-uh. no that's uh that's a good scheme when you figure it out until yeah. you got to start paying them back <laughs> it was great until you know the interest and stuff started kicking in right yeah um so I, I don't know I made it about two years I think doing that in Oxford and then mom moved back to the coast uh dad had had gotten our fish camp kind of uh renovated to where she could live down there while they were rebuilding the house in uh in ocean springs and um i guess once that was out of the question like i had no responsibilities whatsoever nowhere to show up even twice a week and 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 at this point i wasn't even able to take out student loans anymore because the school was like no nah, you yeah like, you, you can't even enroll in classes anymore we're done um got broke really fast uh started working on a paint crew painting the apartments that i lived in in oxford and this older guy one day said, Hey, I know you're broke and I know you, I know you enjoy cocaine. He's like, why don't you try this? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not smoking that. I, I know what that is. I, again, I grew up in the eighties. I saw all this stuff. Yeah. You know? And he's like, well, don't you put it on the end of your cigarettes when you're snorting cocaine? I was like, yeah. And he goes, it's the same thing. Well, that was the first time I smoked crack. Makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. It was the first time I smoked crack. And to say that it, it, it was an instant hit for me is the biggest understatement in the world. It um kind of like I was telling you earlier, it's the only drug I've ever done that completely shut my brain down. Um it only did it for a minute or two at a time, but it completely shut my brain yeah. off. And Why I added all to, the noise. All the noise was gone. I mean I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't think about anything. I couldn't even look across the room and know who was sitting there. Mm. Um and it got bad really, really fast. And that's when the real consequences as far as I was concerned came in. Um Mom and dad realized pretty quickly that I was taking dad's credit card to Walmart like four times a week at two o'clock in the morning and buying random stuff and trading it to the drug dealer because I had no more money. And yep. Dad shows up one day unannounced in Oxford knocking on the door and uh, I didn't want to answer the door. And uh, he said, well, you're going to answer the door for me or you're going to answer for the cops. The only difference is if you answer it for me, you're not going to have to go to jail and deal with the cops. And I didn't want to answer the door because a crack dealer was sitting on the couch next to me. Um, and so... Had to go through that. Mom and dad bring me home. They they send me to a drug therapist once a week, and I had to live with them for six months. And then uh, I thought it was a great idea that, you know, if I got married, that, you know, everything would, would be okay. So I got married, um, moved to Jackson, uh, and 
I probably stayed clean for about six months at that point in time. Got a job with a cousin of mine and uh, quickly realized I could kind of do what I wanted to do. And so I started getting high again. Did um, you go straight back to crack or was there No, I started smoking pot at first okay. and um, I could function. And and really, pot was good enough at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd realized how scary the crack addiction had gotten and yeah. how quickly it had gotten that way. And uh, so I was trying to control it, you know, I guess. And like, well, if I just smoke pot... I'll be okay. You know, I can control that and, and I can function and I can go to work. Um, that didn't last very long. And uh, I started smoking crack again. And uh, this started the kind of revolving door of jobs in my mm-hmm. professional career. And, and I would get a job. I could work it for probably 18 months to two years. And they would either realize something was wrong with this guy and let me go. Or I would realize they're they're about to let me go and I would quit. You just leave before you get fired. Yeah. And yeah. I would make up all these excuses in the world to cover it up for my family. Like, well, this wasn't working out and that wasn't working out or downsizing, this, this, you know? Yeah. This disagreement with this guy, or they promised me this and it didn't come through. And, um, so I worked about four different accounting jobs and, um, and then I got laid off from one that I didn't see coming and I couldn't get another job right away. By this point, I'd had so many jobs that people weren't just going to hire me right away. They're yeah. Like, Wait a minute. You've been in Jackson for four years and you've had like five jobs. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, why don't you stay anywhere? <clears throat> right. The, the, the names of the colleges that I attended were no longer sufficient enough to get me an interview with, uh, with anybody. And so I was unemployed for a few months and, um, during that period, things got really bad, and and um, the lady that I was married to at the time realized how bad it was. And thankfully, you know, I think she saved my life multiple times, uh, that being one of them. Um, she realized how bad it was, um, and I would stay up late at night saying I was watching TV, and I would get high while her and our kids were asleep. And um, she walked in one night, and I'm standing on the back porch with a crack pipe in my hand, like staring down at the ground thinking that a snake or a rat or something's like climbing up my pants. And she's like, what is going on with you? And so she called my dad and her dad the next day. And uh, that was my first stint in treatment. And uh, that was December of 2013. Um, Did they like do a full blown intervention? Were you willing to go at that point? At that point I was just willing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I was willing to completely give up doing drugs, but I knew I had a problem and, yeah. and the pain was pretty bad. And, and I wanted, I wanted to save the marriage. I wanted to be a good dad. I wanted to be able to have a job, but I don't know that I was really ready to quit. But there was a lot on the line. Yes, absolutely. So, um, I guess a couple of weeks later, uh, I ended up at Bridge to Recovery. Um, at the time, they were in Ridgeland. And uh, went through the full IOP program there. And I'll never forget the the last night I was there, the term they use, you know, is coining out. You get a nice little coin yeah. that shows you've completed. And it goes around the room and everybody tells you these wonderful things that they think you've learned and how you've grown and impacted their recovery and so it goes all the way around the room and it gets to the therapist and, and I'll never forget Lynn and I won't leave her last name out. Um, but Lynn gets a coin and she looks at me and she goes, I don't think you're ready to leave here. Mm. And it completely shocked me. And actually it, it really irritated me. Um, yeah. And uh, I remember asking her, what do you mean? I've completed the program. She said, yeah, you have, but I feel like you've, I feel like you know what to say and you know how to act, but I don't think you've really changed. And I can't make you stay, but if you want to stay and get really healthy, 
you can make that choice. And I said, nope, I'm good. I've done what I need to do. I'm out of here. Yeah. And uh, went to one aftercare meeting the next week. And the following week, I didn't go to aftercare because I was smoking crack. Um, straight back to it. Straight back to it. Um, so she was absolutely right. And, um, you know, it, it has really informed my views on recovery to a large extent today. Um, I think that a lot of times um, people that love us think that 30 days worth of treatment is going to, going to cure us. Mm -hmm. And and I've, my experience and, and the experience that I've had with, with a lot of people that I work with or work around has shown me that 30 days is really just a detox. Yeah. Um, that's just the start. Yeah. You got to have continued work and yeah. a lot of it. Well, and if you're at the point that you need to go to treatment, um, 30 days is, is, barely scratching the surface. In fact, what my opinion, and I'm not a clinician, I'm, you know, not certified in any way, shape or form, but I'm around it a lot. In my opinion, at the end of 30 days, you really are probably in a worse position emotionally than you were when you got there because Absolutely. you've realized you have all these emotions and you've brought them to the surface, yeah. but you have no coping mechanism other than what you've always done, mm -hmm. right? And that pink cloud comes yeah. like, wow, my life is so great. Yeah, I'm like, so great. I feel awesome. I yeah. can wake up in the mornings. I don't need to smoke crack. And right. like, I do have emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's like, maybe but I can just that, smoke pot. You're like right. in that bubble though too, like yeah. in rehab. Because I remember towards the end of it, like, man, I feel good. I got this. I'm, I started making big plans, scheming, you know, all these things I'm going to do. But like, there was none of the real world in there. I didn't have to have a job. I didn't yep. have to worry about the bills that I was behind. I didn't have to worry about my car that was getting repoed, where I was going to live when I got out. Like yeah. all of that was just outside of my little rehab right. safety bubble. Yeah. Somebody you know, was taking care of it that, for me when I was there. It's like, so. oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> like life didn't stop. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you have so <clears throat> much experience in recovery. Um, what, what started? Yeah. So, Fast forward real fast, 2014, go to inpatient treatment, get out, stay sober and clean for about six months, relapse, move to Birmingham to a, a sober living slash extended care program for about another six months, came home, stayed clean and sober for about six months, got a job at a level doing something completely unrelated to accounting that I really enjoyed, um, and things looked okay. Um, they went off the rails again, um, in 2018, I hit it for a little while towards the end of 2019, it got really bad and <clears throat> I was getting caught a lot again at home and was backed into a corner. Um, promised that I would go to an AA meeting, went to an AA meeting, um, fell asleep, went to an AA meeting the next day, fell asleep. And uh, woke up about halfway through, and this man who I'd never seen before. Now, keep in mind, from 2014 through late 2019, I'm still going to AA meetings pretty yeah. regularly. So I knew a lot of people, but I was never involved. I was you You're know, going to nap <clears throat> time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you never did the the stuff no, that was suggested. No, 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 no. I was one, two, three. See ya. Yeah. Uh, I think I did one one fourth step in there and uh, ghosted that sponsor and. Um, uh, not not doing a fist step. Yeah, uh, I write this stuff on paper, but I'm not gonna tell you about it. Ooh, no, no, no. Yeah. Um. So wake up. This guy's talking, um, and he's telling my story. Mm. Difference is, instead of being in his early 40s, 
he's in his late 60s, and he went about 10 more years than I did and ended up losing the family, being homeless, you know, all these things that were the, the things that I had yet to do, but I knew were right, right there. Yeah. Um, and I remember just something in me moved when I heard him speaking. And I said, if I'm ever going to do this, this is the guy that's going to help me. And uh, he got up about 10 minutes later early and was leaving the meeting. And I got up early, which scared the de- scared me to death because I thought I was going to get caught. Because <laughs> I'm having to share my location and all this stuff at this point, you know. Um, and so I walk outside, introduce myself, and said, look, I-, I don't know what I need, but I can't keep doing what I'm doing. And I really related to what you shared. And he said, well, you asked me to be your sponsor. And I said, I guess I am. And he said, what are you willing to do? And I said, I don't know. I really don't know, but I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. And he said, thank you for being honest. I can work with that. Um, so John became my sponsor, um, started going to AA meetings regularly and working with him. And a few months later, <clears throat> COVID hit in uh, early 2020. And um, I made it about two weeks into being home uh, from the office every day, and I relapsed. And I remember calling John and telling him what was going on. And he said that this was the first time that a, like a father figure for me had said, it's okay. Like you, you're lucky you're back. And I don't recommend that you do this anymore, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this. I still love you. I'm still your sponsor. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move forward from this. And um, he said, look, we're going to wake up every single morning at 6 AM and we're going to FaceTime each other and we're going to read the book and we're going to work these steps. And, and I'm going to start going with you to this outdoor meeting um, that's pretty much a men's only meeting in Gluckstadt. Um, and he would meet me and follow me and let me text when I got home. So I had all this accountability between him and, and the wife and everything. And and something in that process, and, and looking back, I know what it is. It's 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 God, and it's, it's a connection with another addict, mm-hmm. right, that really dr- drug me out of of my addiction and allowed me to work the steps in a safe, secure, loving, uh, space. And, and I needed that. Um, I, I I remember when we were working the steps and, and, um, those that are listening, will 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 know where in the steps we were at this point, but he said, so do you believe that God will do for you what you can't do for yourself? And I said, no. And, um, and I explained it. I said, it's not that I don't think God can, I don't think God will. For me, mm. uh, I think I'm at that point that God's written me off. Yeah, He's done with you in your yeah. mind. Yeah, I'm. I'm not worthy of being saved, right? Uh, how much ego is that, right? Like, I mean, we don't think about it that way, but that's huge ego right there, mm-hmm. saying like, "I'm so bad." Yeah, you know, it is. Um, People don't uh, always understand this. At least I didn't until I was getting sober. That that um. That, yeah, being so hard on yourself is just the opposite side of the spectrum. Right. On the self-centeredness scale. Absolutely. Like, there's, I'm so much better than you. Yeah. Looking down or like, (laughs) I can't, they're going to step on me. Right. It's, it's this, it serves the same unfortunate purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, that's exactly where I was and that's what I explained to John and, and, um, thankfully he at the time was about, I think 14 years clean maybe 15, and he'd seen this a time or two. Yeah, he'd been and, around the block. Yeah, and he didn't hesitate, and he said, well, do you believe 
that I believe yep. God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. And I'm not sure I believed, but what I believed was he believed because he was getting his butt up at 6 o'clock every morning and he was pouring every ounce of love that he had into me mm-hmm. for an hour and a half every single morning. And so when I told him that, he said, well, we can start from there. And, you know, the part of the book that talks about the hoop that we have to jump through is, is a lot bigger than what we really think it is when we're at that point in, in the journey, right? And, um, you know, I like to think that, uh, that my God does not make too hard of terms for me, <clears throat> for me when I earnestly seek him. And that can be in the moment. I mean, I can be having a bad moment and running completely on self-control and self-reliance and realize it and go, oh, God, I need some help here. And Mm -hmm. things will instantly change. And that's been my experience. That was my experience right then and there was the program started working and I started changing and God started working in my life. And um, I started getting real results. Unfortunately, I still had some... um, some reservations about what I was willing to do for my recovery and those reared their ugly head. Uh, a few months later, um, Father Dave, the the rector that I told y'all about it at Notre Dame, he and I were the best of friends. And in fact, he officiated our wedding. Um, he had come down with a form of blood cancer that was really rare and he passed away mm-hmm. and I wasn't ready to deal with that emotionally. And I, I didn't reach out to a sponsor and I relapsed, uh, got really, really drunk called John and told him, and, and John said the same thing uh, that he had said before, except he said, well, we got to figure out, you know, how we're going to deal with this moving forward. And then he added one caveat. He said, if you relapse again, I don't know that I can keep working with you, not because I don't want to, but because you're obviously not getting something in the message from me that you need. And um, that was a different way of hearing that, right? It's not like getting kicked out of treatment or yeah. Getting kicked out of the house. It's, it's, this is not working for you and I'm going to help you find what will work for you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, again, just a different perspective and what I needed, you know, when I was, when I was really early in this process of, of recovery. And so we started working the steps again, <clears throat> going on the third time and in, in about eight months of working the steps and, um, um, Made it for a while. He had introduced me to a couple of guys that he made me call every single day because I was having domestic issues and work issues, and and he's older and hadn't gone through some of this, but some of these guys had, right? Like that that men's group that we all have yeah. to have or women's group that we all have to have in recovery outside of just a sponsor. And um, and thankfully, he, he knew what he was doing there too because um, some things went down, uh, a lot of – a lot of uh, heated emotions one day, and I got really angry. And I said, I'm going to show you. And I went and bought $20 worth of crack, and I waited until I knew she was coming home. And I said, I'm going to get high, and I'm going to show her what I'm going to do when, when things go the way that they just went. And I did. And she walked straight in the house, and she, she knew what was up. And she said, you're, you're calling your sponsor, and you're, you're calling your therapist, and you're telling them what's going on. And uh, if you don't, you can leave the house right now. So I agreed, got up the next morning, called my sponsor, called my therapist who I was having to do FaceTime with at the time because of COVID. Yeah. And, and I got on FaceTime and I said, this is what happened. I told her I was going to call you and put you on the phone with her. I did. I'm done. And I got up and I walked out and I sat on the back porch. And five minutes later, my therapist, who is also in recovery, showed up at my house mm. and said, look, 
you're going to die if you keep going this way. And I said, okay, well, what do I need to do? And he said, you need to go back to treatment. And I said, all right, great. Where do I need to go? And he said, I want to take you back to Bridge to Recovery where I'm working. And I want you to do IOP again, and we'll see if that works. And if not, then we'll we'll look at if you need to do inpatient. Um, I, I have to back up. That was so much. Yeah, go ahead. You were wilding out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. with some time. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. So what is the inner monologue? Do, so, you, do you have these emotions or feelings that come up that are like, well, maybe I should do a different action. Maybe this isn't. No, at the time I didn't. Nothing, nothing. Nothing that you had to push down. No, at the time, the only emotions that I had were anger and I displayed them through rage. Right. Um, I don't know that I was, I, I just wasn't feeling anything. I think it had been shut off for so long. Mm-hmm. If I was feeling it, I didn't recognize it. Um, and, and I was really in a pink cloud the whole time because of how good I was feeling. I was working from home. So I had all this freedom. I'm around my kids all the time. Um, so really when these relapses would happen, it was something emotional that I didn't know how to handle because I wasn't dealing with any emotions ever. Right. And, and I wasn't willing to let somebody in on the front end and say, Hey, I'm struggling here and I don't know what to do with this. So right. when those feelings hit, you had no defense. No defense whatsoever. You just went yeah. straight back just to, straight I know back. this works. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. Well, and it's back to when you were younger and you lost your grandfather. I see that in my story and so many people's stories that when we lose, we experience abuse, something heartbreaking happens. It's just simply we don't know how right. to live life. Like others. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in the, the whole trauma model, right, yeah. fits in, in, in this for me. And, and and what I've learned about trauma is it, it has nothing to do with the actual event. And it has to do with how my brain processed mm-hmm. that event or couldn't yeah. process that event, right? Yeah. And so every time that something like that happened throughout my life, I was reliving that trauma. And for me, that trauma looks like a fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um my grandfather yeah. left me. Dad was gone a lot. Um, friends started leaving because I was drinking and using too much. Whatever, you know, the situation was, It in my brain it was, I'm going to be abandoned if I'm not checking all the boxes and being this perfect person, which is that second, you know, second life that we all live, that I was living. And so any time that somebody was was displeased with me, I got scared that I was about to get cut off. Yeah, and, I relate and, to that. So those emotions came up, whatever they were, as a result of that, looking back. And um, I just wasn't ready to deal with it, and I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so I went back to Bridge to Recovery. And uh, another, you know, people say coincidence all the time, and I, I'm not a believer in coincidence. I'm just not at this point in my life. What I am a believer in is that there is some sort of God out there and I'm not sure that I can give you an accurate description, nor do I want to. Yeah. But that God works in my life and, and in this universe and, and the connections in, in between mine and everybody else in the universe in ways that um, need to be worked in, in, in his, his grand plan. Mm-hmm. And his grand plan at that time was Jody was ready to get clean and sober, but Jody didn't know how to, and Jody needed a lot of support. So what God did for me, looking back, is God gave me a large insurance settlement from an injury uh, that I'd had that I didn't even want to file a a worker's comp claim on and got kind of coaxed by a buddy of mine to do him. 
never thought would turn out to be an insurance claim. And uh, the insurance company called me because I refused to take pain medicine and said, well, we don't, we don't think we can continue with this. So what would you think about settling? The settlement was large enough and it was two weeks before I went back to bridge to recovery mm. that when I walked into bridge to recovery and I was talking to him, I said, look, 10 weeks ain't going to work this time. I remember what happened last time and I'm not, I'm not here for that. So I'm here for as long as y'all tell me I need to be here. And I'm not going to ask you when I can leave until I've been here for a solid year. And I'm not going to accept y'all telling me it's time to leave until y'all tell me to leave. My sponsor tells me it's time to leave. My therapist tells me it's time to leave. And my family agrees it's time for me to leave. And so I went back into IOP and I stayed at Bridge to Recovery. Uh, That was October the 20th of 2020. I went for, so what would that be? Four months. And my therapist said, well, I think it's about time for you to get out. And we started having all these conversations. And he talked to my sponsor, who was also a client of his. Um, and he said, wait, you hadn't done a fourth and fifth step yet. And I said, no, I hadn't. I told you, Mike, I was, I'm, I'm taking my time. Like, I'm, I've got to be ready to do this stuff. I'm doing this very intentionally. And I haven't because I, I don't know that I'm ready yet. And he said, well, you got to do a fourth and fifth step to get out of here. And I said, okay, well, it'll happen when it happens. So six months of a 10 week program, I finished a fourth and fifth step and, uh, they said, okay, we think it's time for you to get out. Uh, but we're a little bit nervous. We don't think that going back to your house seven days a week is a healthy situation for you. And, um, by this point, the, the situation had digressed so badly. I mean, I'm sleeping on a couch and kids aren't talking to me. It's, it's bad. Yeah. Even though I'm in treatment. And a stranger else. in and, your own home. Yeah. And, and they weren't comfortable with the fact that I was staying clean or I wasn't staying clean. And I was still doing silly stuff from time to time. And the relapses that occurred, you know, gave them every reason not to believe me. Mm-hmm. Uh, legitimate reason not to believe me, you know. And um, if only they could read our hearts and know if we're for real this time. Right. But I wouldn't believe someone, either, you know, oh. I haven't been on this other side yet. But, you know, I wouldn't believe him either. But how many times did you say, oh, yeah, I'm getting exactly. clean this time? So many. And, like, I meant it. Yeah. But I wasn't yes. I wasn't ready. Right. I just wasn't there. Yeah. Absolutely. So I went home. Um, I think I made it three weeks. And uh, the situation was just not going to happen. I don't even remember the, the exact things that happened that went down on, that went down on that. But I remember going back to my, my therapist and saying, look, I think that suggestion you gave me a while back about going to sober living is a pretty good suggestion. And he said, okay, great. And we came up with a plan and I was going to move into sober living at the beginning of May. Um, the day that I left to go to sober living was just a terrible day for, for my family, for my kids, for me. Um, emotionally just just horrible and my sponsor had said when you leave there you call me and I said okay I will of course I didn't um drove to sober living which was a solid quarter of a mile from my house got there did all the paperwork said I need to go to Walmart uh I don't have sheets and towels and I'm standing in line at Walmart and by this point I've got my credit card back which I had not had in like seven years yeah and uh, I'm standing in the line at Walmart the only line that's open and it's the one with all the cigarettes on it and I'm like, the crack dealer will trade me crack for cases of Newports. And no towels were bought, no sheets were bought, and I relapsed. And I was I was out for about two days, and, and I called, 
everybody that I knew begging, said, I need to go back to treatment. I need to get into sober living. Treatment said, you're not coming back unless you're in sober living. Sober living said, sorry, we don't have a bed for you. Um, I'm Googling, I'm calling. I finally found this 1-800 number for a national office for Oxford House. And I called this number and, and uh, this guy answered and he said, what's going on? And I told him everything. Told him exactly how it went down with the relapse. Told Completely him what I'd honest. been doing. 100% honest. And I go on for about five minutes and he goes, hey, my name's Johnny. I also work for Linwood House. I'm a manager there too and I know your exact story and thank you for telling me the truth. He said, I'm going to see what I can do about getting you back into Linwood House. Give me 45 minutes. And 45 minutes later, he called me. He said, we've got your bed at Linwood House. Come on back. Mm. And I called Bridge to Recovery, and I went to treatment that night. And I voluntarily agreed to take daily drug tests until I was completely clean so I could move back into sober living. I moved into sober living with a guy that was less than half my age, was miserable. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. to go to work and be a professional, and he could stay up until 2 a.m. and do whatever he wanted to do. And <laughs> um, But at that point... I was finally, I finally realized exactly what I had to do if I wanted to stay clean and sober. And that was, I had to be a hundred percent honest and I had to do everything in my power to follow all of the rules and suggestions and recommendations that were being given to me. And if I was struggling, I had to be willing to tell somebody before I got high. Yeah. And, and, and I did that for about three weeks and I had a Saturday morning, um, about 6.30 in the morning, and I'm normally, I mean, I run my whole life, and normally on Saturday mornings are my long runs, and I couldn't go because it was raining, and, uh, man, I, like, I lost it, and I'm in the car, and I'm driving to the gas station to get beer, Kratom, I, I didn't care, I just wanted to get high, and I started calling everybody that I knew, and nobody's answering because it's 6.30, 6.45 on a Saturday morning, so finally I called Johnny again, and I said, look, man, this is what's going on. And he said, can you go back to the house? I'll be there in five minutes. And I went back to the house, and he was there, and he sat with me. And um, and I didn't get high that day. Mm. And that was the last time that I struggled with wanting to get high on my own. And it's the last time that I haven't called somebody when something was going on in my life before I, before I took action based on what was going on in my life. Yeah. Um, and recovery got simple at that point. Um, sober living saved my life. Um, John helped save my life. Um, my sponsor in between the John and, and today, his name is Clark. He helped save my life. Um, they all introduced me to a program and to a group of people, helped me form a relationship with a God that I can do business with and showed me what gratitude really looked like. And, um, those, those people, those connections, um, that gratitude and, and that faith that have been built as a result of that really drives me today to do the things that I do. Um, I was in sober living for about six months and they said, Hey, we're, we're going to need some help managing this place. And I said, okay, sign me up. And for about the next year and a half, I worked two jobs, uh, and, um, volunteered for the, the sober living one. And uh, loved it. And yeah. uh, about six months after doing that, I was talking to my therapist and said, hey, I don't, I don't know if I want to do accounting for the rest of my life. I think I want to get into recovery-based something or another. And 
He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really enjoy when, like, you know, guys at the house would relapse or something like that, and, and we'd have to help them get into treatment. And I said, you know, I really enjoy doing that. And um, and uh, he said, well, do you have something lined up? And I said, no. And he said, well, why don't you hang tight for a little bit? Keep working your job. Keep doing what you're doing. Let people see, you know, your passion and, and uh, your dedication to, to doing what you're doing you know, with the sober living and, and around recovery and again, taking suggestions, doing what other people, mm-hmm. you know, suggested I should do instead of what I wanted to do, which was just up and say, here's two weeks notice. I'm out, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that situation continued for about another six months. So I'm, I'm a little over a year into, um, sober living and, uh, or excuse me, a little over a year into managing sober living. Uh, I lived at sober living for 11 months um, and then moved out and, and got my own place. Um, and uh, about six months after saying I wanted to quit accounting, so now we're at about 18 months of being clean again, um, I got an offer to, to go to work for a treatment center. Uh, a group of treatment centers was opening a, um, an outpatient program in Oxford, and they wanted me to do community outreach and business development. Um, after a lot of thought and prayer and discussions with other people, I decided to do it, got out of accounting, went to work, and I think precisely three weeks after I started that job, they called all three of us employees on a, a Microsoft Teams meeting and said, we're shutting the treatment center down. Y'all are all unemployed. Oh, shit. Yeah, and I went, wait, huh? Hold, Took hold the on. big leap of faith, and then the floor fell out from under like, you. Like, God, what, what, what's going on here, God? You know, um, all those emotions came back, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the anger, the fear, uh, the, the frustration. Um, the really cool thing about recovery is, is, is I knew what to do. Yeah. I, I sat there in that office in Oxford with the other two employees, both of who are in recovery and one who's a therapist, and we processed what we were going through and said, okay, well, what does that look like moving forward? And before I left that office, I called my sponsor and told him what was going on, called a couple other people and told them what was going on, and they said, okay, well, come talk to me when you get back. And um, I got to a place where I was, I knew I was okay to leave and be on my own and be able to drive back to Jackson. And on that drive back from Jackson, I said, you know, I'm not doing anything for two weeks. I'm just, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm just, I'm going to enjoy two weeks. Mm-hmm. And before that two weeks was up, one of those people that I had called, called me and uh, said, come meet with me. I went and talked with her. And she said, I want you to call this person and talk to her and see if she can't give you some guidance. And uh, her name's Dr. Sherry Young. She's in New Mexico. And so I called Sherry and told her what was going on and trying to figure out what to do and we're talking and she's kind of telling me like her story and this and that and about 30 minutes in she goes hey what would you think about working with me I have no idea how this would work I was not even considering this when you call but I I think this would work and uh, so I took another leap of faith and uh, went out and started my own business and my business is uh, doing business with her business and that business looks a lot like um, business development and community outreach for treatment centers, but we do it on a contract basis and a non-exclusive basis. So the side that everybody in recovery sees is that I get to independently um, help with anybody that 
comes to me for help, whether it be to get into treatment, to get into detox, to go to sober living, just needs a therapist, um, anything on the spectrum, like you just need to go to an AA meeting. I know where AA meetings are. I go to them every day. I go to NA meetings twice a week. Like, what do you want to do? Yeah. You know? Um, and so somehow in, in his way, God, I think worked all this out. And, you know, my limited vision is Mm -hmm. God needed to give me something stable enough to get me out of accounting. So I would make that jump and feel okay. But that's not what he really wanted me to do. Yeah. You know? And, uh, so he found a way to get me, I, I hope, and I pray where he wanted me to be. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier, passion and, and being able to do something that you really love and that, that really is important in, in my life, um, you know, without the love and care and dedication of people that for no other reason than somebody had done it for them and I needed help. So they were going to do it for me to be able to, to live that on a daily basis. And, uh, to, you know, 24 hours a day have the freedom to say, somebody just called and needed help, I'm going to do this, Yeah, um, is just remarkable. And to think that there's that scared little 12-year-old boy drinking 240s and not telling anybody what's going on to this, you know, man sitting in front of you today who's confident enough to, you know, start a business and be willing to help other people. And, you know, it's it's a God thing. It is crazy what God will do. I was just thinking as you were kind of telling like, you know, that job getting kind of pulled out from under you. um, I I think I actually sent this to Danny the other day. Like one of my favorite lines in the book, and I'll probably misquote it, but it's like nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Absolutely. And that's been my experience. Like every time I think in sobriety that shit's hitting the fan and that like, oh, this is the end of my world a newer, better opportunity presents itself. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's so crazy to me how that works. Yeah. I'm with you a hundred percent and, and not even, you know, the definition of better has changed for me. Yeah. You, know, you said that and, and it's, it's not always, you know, people think, uh, or at least I did. And I think a lot of people do when we get into recovery, we're going to get all this fun stuff in life. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. get the new car, the new house. We go we, straight to material things. Right. Like, right. Give me more money. But but rarely do we think about the fact that, like, peace and serenity and, like, I can wake up and and do the things that I need to do on a daily basis for my mental health and my physical health and yet still have a job that allows me to pay the bills and support my kids and, you know, to do the things in life that are fun and important, right, mm-hmm. um, is, is amazing. Yeah. You know? So that, that's better. It's a totally different definition, though, than what I would have given you oh, yeah. two years ago. Like my my goal post has kind of changed there because more, more money doesn't give me more peace. No, more time spent with other addicts and alcoholics, more time spent trying to seek a spiritual connection, like that gives me more peace. You right. know, you could add three more zeros to my bank account, and it, it's not gonna it's not gonna change the way I feel and in the way that I'm looking for nowadays. No, you're absolutely right. Because I'm not looking for that that quick high anymore like like we used to be. Like we all sought out to, you know, to fix us or to make us feel okay or like right. we weren't so different. You know, it's it's a really uh, really humbling thought for me and, and I think about it quite regularly is what would I do different if I didn't have to worry about making money? And I think finally where I am in my life is I don't think I would do anything different. That's I think awesome. I'd wake up and do what I do. And I'm sure things would change and I would grow and change as a result of that. But if I woke up tomorrow with $10 million in the bank, 
would I still do what I'm doing? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a no good doubt. place to be. You know. That's yeah. benchmark. Right. And that that is a goal that I certainly have for myself. And I think that we all cultivate that too. Like when I was doing gratitude lists, it was um, – it was not allowed for me to put material items down. Yeah. And I was yeah. working at an Aveda store at the time. <laughs> and so my gratitude list for my mentor, she'd be like, you have to send me 10 things. And it would be like, okay, um, the shampoo, shampoo, the, you know, cooling oil, the, like, literally just all those items. And she's like, no, 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 no. Literally, like, your health, things you can't buy, waking up not hung over all these things. And I think that the more I've packed of gratitude in my life, the lot less I care about those material items. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying that practice. We're we're all so conditioned in in the world today to think that those are the markers of success, right? Absolutely. Oh, I've got the new iPhone. I'm wearing these cool shoes. Like I'm driving this right, but it doesn't make a difference in the grand scheme of things now where I sit today. And and that's the beauty of it. All of those physical things, like, they might make me feel different for just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, like, that new car smell wears off. Right. Nobody else noticed that I'm wearing brand new shoes. Yeah. Nobody else has seen what's happening in my bank account. So, like, it, you know, it's a brief, like, oh, I'm there. And, like, oh, wait, I don't feel that different. Like, yeah. Oh, shit, I got to keep <laughs> <Yeah>. going? <sighs> exactly. But you're chasing the wrong thing if that's what you're chasing. You're you know? right. Absolutely. Jody, you've been so awesome and candid. I really appreciate you coming on here and laying everything out. There's so much in your story. I feel like we could be here so much longer just talking about each section. Um, but it's so reassuring for me to hear how you're now using that experience for others. Um, and I'm hoping that someone listening to this this morning or whenever you're... <laughs> maybe not this morning, but whenever you listen to this um, episode that, that they also hear themselves in you like you did yeah. in that meeting. Yeah. That's the, that's the beautiful thing about recovery, right? Is that it's, it's open to everyone and anyone. All you got to do is reach out and say, right. Hey, I need some help. And, and I'm no different than, than you guys or anybody else in recovery. I think when we, when we finally kind of get to that place in recovery is we're always willing to help. It's one of the things that, that we enjoy doing and, and thank y'all so much for inviting me on and let me share my story. And absolutely. And you know, if anybody is listening at any point in time and needs help, feel free. I mean, reach out, call me, um, call anybody that you know and just say, I need help because that's where the process starts. Definitely. Do you want to plug how to, how to get in touch with you if anybody does? Yeah, sure. So, uh, few different ways, I guess. Um, one, you can call my cell phone, two, two, eight, six, two, three, 3329. You can text me. You can email me at Jody with a Y, Jody Penton, P E N T O N, at gmail.com. Or you can find our uh, website by searching for Right Fit Collaborative um, on Google. I think it's rightfitcollaborative.com. But anyway, any of those websites will get you in touch or with me and then obviously phone number, email. And if they want to be you, can you drop your social? Uh, I don't oh. even know what it is. That's so, <laughs> like, I'm I'm a little too old to like know. Want to like, be you? Um, I I'm not on TikTok. I might have a Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and it's Jody Penton. <laughs> Find him on it, Facebook. It, it might be Joseph Penton too. I don't know. 
<laughs> it's Jody. We, we typed it in a minute ago to tag you. Fair enough. Well, yeah. thank you, Jody. Thank y'all. Yeah, I, I appreciate, really appreciate you. you. And y'all keep brother. doing what you're doing. This is a great service to the community, <laughs> and y'all should keep it up. Proud of y'all. Appreciate it, brother. Attention. Now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block.